This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Today on Dreamland, we're going to be talking about something very extraordinary. Who are the three fates? Clotho, who weaves the cloth of life. Lachesis, who measures the length of that cloth. And Atropos, who cuts it when the time is right. We're going to be talking, in other words, about life and death. And who would we choose to talk about life and death with? Well, how about the winner of an essay contest sponsored by Robert Bigelow about the best proof of afterlife? Welcome, Dr. Jeffrey Mishlove to Dreamland. Jeff, I'm so delighted to have you here in my lair instead of me being in your lair. <laughs> so it's a real pleasure to have you here. Uh, tell us a little bit about, to, to begin, uh, about the essay itself. Well, I'll, let, me, let me just say something to my subscribers and to my listeners. I was not in the contest because I am not efficient, and I failed to notice the deadline until it was too late. So, uh, in any case, you didn't fail to notice the deadline and instead wrote an absolutely breathtaking essay that covers so many different levels of the question of afterlife. Uh, when you decided to write the essay, it was basically because of what changed your life way back when. Uh, tell us about what you were doing, and then what happened. Well, Whitley, if you had known me in 1972, 50 years ago, you would have seen a graduate student in criminology at Berkeley. I was volunteering in the psychiatric unit of San Quentin Prison, conducting group therapy sessions with murderers and rapists. Talk about fate. And it was at that time that I had the most powerful dream of my life. It, neither before nor since have I had anything comparable to this. My great uncle Harry visited me in this dream, and it happened to have occurred, I later learned, virtually at the moment of his death. And the dream was so powerful. We had this soul-to-soul -soul communication. And when I awakened from the dream, Whitley, I was crying. I was sobbing tears of joy and simultaneously singing one of the most sacred songs uh, that I learned uh, in, the, in the Jewish liturgy of my own background. I wrote home. Asked my parents, how's Uncle Harry? I had a dream about him. My mother called me as soon as she got my letter saying, how did you know? That's just when he died. So, yeah, it, go ahead. Well, it was that dream that inspired me to 
change my life in, in a dramatic and permanent way. I, I knew I was interested in studying human deviance, but I decided that I had to switch. I could no longer focus on psychopathology and crime any longer. Now, when I you say to, human deviance, that's a very interesting phrase to bring to the study of after uh, to afterlife studies. Uh, why would you use that word at all? You were certainly studying deviance when you were uh, at uh, studying prisoners uh, and doing psychological work, psychology work with prisoners. But why do you continue to use that word? Well. There, are, I think of it as positive forms of human deviance and intuition, psychic functioning, creativity, uh, mysticism. These were, uh, to me, sort of uh, at the other end of the polarity of uh, the kinds of deviance that we have. And I struggled for months to figure out how can you do this in the university setting. I talked to my professors about the dream I had had, and none of them seemed to be able to say anything intelligent about it at all. So I resolved I would have to become my own expert, but I really didn't know how. That took a second dream uh, in order <laughs> for me to figure that out. And it was the result of the second dream. One might say that I'm here talking to you now because uh, that was a dream that guided me to get involved uh, as an interviewer on uh, at the time, it was nonprofit, listener-sponsored radio. And tell us about the second dream, if you don't mind. Well, after months of agonizing about how can I make this shift in my career, one day I knew without any doubt that the answer was going to come to me in a dream that evening. And indeed, I had a dream. I dreamt I was visiting some friends of mine in Berkeley, where I was a student, uh, knocked on the door of their apartment in married student housing, and there was no answer in my dream. I found where they hid a key, let myself into their apartment there. In the middle of the living room floor was a magazine, and I was paging through the magazine in the dream when I woke up with this feeling of, Eureka, I found it. And the funny thing is I had no idea what it meant, but I was certain I had the answer. So I acted out the dream. I put on my tennis shoes, ran across Berkeley five miles to this apartment, knocked on the door. As I had dreamt, nobody was home, and it turned out I did know where they hid the key, under the doormat. So I took their key, let myself into the apartment, and to my amazement there in the middle of the living room floor was sitting a magazine, just as I had dreamt. And it was not I in the dream. It was I, E-Y-E. -E. In actuality, the name was Focus. And it was the magazine, as some of your listeners and viewers will know, of KQED, listener-sponsored radio and television. And as I was paging through it, it dawned on me, that's what I should do to pursue my interests, get involved in the non-commercial area of the media, which was a huge shift for me at the time, Whitley. I didn't own 
a radio or a TV at that point in my life. I was a long-haired hippie who believed that the only authentic communications were face-to-face and all electronic media was just phony baloney. But at that moment, I changed my mind. I went and volunteered at KPFA Radio in Berkeley, a Pacifica radio station, nonprofit. And even though I had my master's degree, they said to me, well, sit at this desk. And when you hear the buzzer, you push this button and let people in the front door. And I gladly accepted that position as a volunteer. Within three weeks, I had learned how to produce a radio program. And my first program was, uh, you don't have to be from out of town to be psychic. Uh, the program director liked it, and they gave me a regular slot every noon, Tuesday and Thursday, every Tuesday and Thursday at noon, called the Mind's Ear. And all of a sudden, within three weeks of my dream, I was sitting across the table from world-class experts, people like yourself, who were on book tour, coming through the San Francisco Bay Area, and uh, basically uh, gave me the confidence to go back to the university and take an advantage of an obscure rule that they had to create an individual interdisciplinary doctoral major, which I did in parapsychology. And I can look back now, 50 years later, and say that those two dreams permanently changed my life. Now, the creation of, well, incidentally, I'm glad you mentioned the second dream because it, it means a great deal to me. Uh, I've had a similar dream a couple of nights ago, and I've realized that I must go to that apartment, <laughs> which I will do <laughs> very shortly, as soon as I can. Uh, and it's very interesting. I, you didn't mention that second dream and anything else I've the details of it and anything else I've read or seen, although if it's in the essay, I missed it. Uh, no, it's not. Yeah. Okay. It I didn't think so. So yeah. um, it, it's extremely interesting to me because I had asked the, the universe about this because it entails travel. It's a complicated thing I have to do to give me some sign that I really needed to do it. And now here you're telling this story today. So I do obviously need to do it. And what I'm talking about here, folks, is a type of communication that we're, we're all getting used to, we're beginning to notice that Jeffrey has communicated in his story something that's relevant to my life right now that comes from another dream. What are these dreams, Jeffrey? Who brings them? Who does bring these dreams? I think it's so wonderful that you introduced this program by bringing up the three fates, because I do feel that there is an element of fate that influences our, our lives. I don't think fate is 100% of uh, what happens to us, but it's, it's a very important part of uh, what happens. And I also... When I speak and tell people about these dreams, the, the way I like to couch it, Whitley, is that when you 
resolve that you're going to become somehow the best version of yourself, which was what I was trying to do 50 years ago as a young man, the, the universe will reach out to help you. Exactly. Uh, it, it, it will reach out and it does reach out. It just did reach out to help me. And now, but I don't want to go on about that. What I want to talk about now is something that you, you, your, your degree in parapsychology is unique in the world to this day. And there's something wrong there. Something oh. very, very wrong. And what is wrong is what I call soul blindness. We have lost touch with consciousness. We don't feel it anymore at, except as something inside our bodies. We only are aware of consciousness in the context of ego. How can, what, what can we do? People like you and me or Robert Bigelow and so many others, even Alexander, there's thousands of us to awaken this world to what it really is. Well, let me say one thing, uh, which is sort of hopeful. I do have a unique doctoral diploma. I think I have the only one in the world that says parapsychology is my field of study. However, to be fair, there are hundreds of people who do parapsychological dissertations at universities, primarily in England, uh, but there are a few in the United States and Germany and other places uh, they don't have diplomas that say parapsychology. They typically will say psychology or uh, philosophy or education or some other field. So it just so happens that I got an individual major in parapsychology. But nevertheless, even if you add all those hundreds of uh, people researching consciousness and researching the paranormal, it's nowhere near enough. And you're absolutely right to th say that we live in a soulless society. Carl Jung, the great Swiss psychiatrist, understood this very well when he wrote his book, Modern Man in Search of a Soul. It's as if we've lost touch with the most important part of ourselves. Exactly. As if we have, we have lost touch. And, you know, I think that before the Industrial Revolution, in the West, we were trapped in a religious dictatorship that actually stifled our relationship to consciousness in a different way from the way it's stifled now. <laughs> but then came materialism and the Enlightenment, and we decided, oh, let's just get rid of this horrible business of re religious fanatics burning people at the stake, etc., and so forth, and let's Let's free ourselves from that. And we, we've done that. But now we've got to find the third way. We've got to find the new way because there is another path, that a, a path of spirit and consciousness. And I think in your essay that you don't touch on it specifically, but the tone of it 
And in, I think the, the very much Robert's intent in doing the contest in the first place was to place some markers along that path that are more neutral, that are not, they're, they're more objective. They aren't ideological either in terms of like materialism or religion, but it rather they're potentially at least more scientific, if we, if I may say that. Well, in my essay, I talk about uh, the great Scottish philosopher, David Hume, and uh, he sort of set the tone for Western culture after the Enlightenment when he wrote that uh, no personal testimony will ever be sufficient to prove a miracle. So in writing an essay about the best evidence for the afterlife, that's what I was up against. I really wanted to take on David Hume. And fortunately, <laughs> there were people ahead of me who, who did a good job, such as William James, the founder of American psychology, who in his final uh, writings talked about what he called radical empiricism. Empiricism is the basis of Western science. And James said that if you're going to be truly empirical, you cannot include anything that is not directly observed, but at the same time, you can't ignore anything that is directly observed. And that was his way of admitting human testimony into the equation of, of science. And of course, the behavioral sciences and the social sciences all rely on human testimony. And the Bigelow essay made a point of encouraging human testimony. Uh, even mentioning in the directions for the essay how important it is in the courtroom. So, yes. in, in may I continue, or shall, oh, please, shall please we pause continue. here? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the other element of all of this is to take into account philosophical idealism. There's a long tradition uh, going back to philosophers like Immanuel Kant and uh, Arthur Schopenhauer and Bishop George Berkeley in, in philosophy. And the, the point is very simple. It's, it's that the universe that we experience is a mental universe. It's not a physical universe. In, in fact, Max Planck, the founder of quantum physics, said you can't get beneath consciousness. It's a mistake to think that consciousness is created by the brain. It's actually the reverse, that all of matter is created by consciousness itself. Now, one of the things that happens in, in, in a life is that there is a sense of incompleteness and dissatisfaction. But you know, before we go down that road, folks, our free side, we shall take a little break and we will be back in just a moment. We're talking to Jeffrey Mishlove, New Thinking Aloud, an unmissable and brilliant podcast. Uh, it was one of the finest podcasts, podcasts on the internet, especially if you're interested in the subjects that we are interested in. Now, you talked about David Hume and the rise of, uh, of, of materialism and the narrowing of, 
our focus onto the body. Essentially, was what it, it was about that the, that consciousness is an epiphenomenon that 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 uh, emerges out of brain function, almost as a side effect of brain function, and which seems extremely odd to me to even consider an idea like that as being viable. But tell us what you think may actually be happening, if 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 you will. Yeah, it's very interesting. Uh, Whitley, some 30 years ago, I interviewed the Nobel laureate Francis Crick, the man who was responsible for uh, discovering the double helix nature of the DNA molecule and opening up the whole field of genetic engineering. Uh, probably one of the greatest discoveries of the 20th century. And Crick had written a book called The Astonishing Hypothesis. And his hypothesis is just what we're talking about, that the brain creates consciousness. But fortunately, he had the honesty to admit it was only a hypothesis. Most people, and even in the neurosciences, think it's a given, it's an axiom, it is uh, unquestionable unquestioned. But Crick admitted to me that actually, for all we know, the religious point of view could be correct, that consciousness survives the death of the body. And Martin Gardner, who is, for those who remember him, probably one of the foremost skeptics, or I should rather think of him as a scoffer. He didn't accept anything uh, of the paranormal. He loved nothing more than to make fun of people who were researching the paranormal. However, in a book that he wrote called The Wise of a Philosophical Scrivener, he had a whole chapter on why he believed survival of consciousness after death was possible. And in his chapter, he drew upon the thinking of uh, William James, who keeps coming up again and again. Uh, William James, in uh, the Gifford Lectures in England in 1898, came up with the idea that the brain doesn't create consciousness, rather the brain acts as a receiver of consciousness. Now, this was before the, the era of the radio. So James didn't say receiver, rather he used the metaphor of a filter, that consciousness exists, you could say mind at large, exists in the world and the brain acts as a reducing valve, a, a filter, so that our, that we don't get overwhelmed with knowing everything all at once, which the field of remote viewing suggests is within the realm of human possibility. Remote viewers seem to be able to direct their consciousness to any point in space and time and give us an accurate definition or description of, of what they see. Uh, and there's a lot of evidence pointing in that direction that when the brain begins to shut down, consciousness opens up. Meditation is a way that that happens, and the use of psychedelic drugs has now shown us expansion of consciousness when brain activity is quiet. You might think that the brain would light up like a Christmas tree uh, under the influence of psychedelics because such rich mental experiences are reported, but actually research now shows that the brain is very quiet. 
during psychedelic experiences. So uh, it gives us uh, from multiple directions reason to believe that consciousness is received by the brain and even filtered so that only a little bit of it gets through that we're all part of a much larger realm of of consciousness in which our individual uh, memories and uh, ego and dreams and our personal uh, conscious life is embedded in a larger consciousness you mentioned martin gardner and I have a message from Anne about him and about the scoffers, not necessarily the real skeptics, but the scoffers. They are angry about what they are. And that's what makes them that way, so she says. So, uh, now let's go on to talking about the beyond the filtration theory and the Crick hypothesis, uh, we get into what you think of and discuss as hyperspace and consciousness. Now, I want to know first, before we go on, what how you define hyperspace, and therefore also, what is your vision of consciousness when it is not bound into the stream of time by a body? Uh, hyperspace is like our three-dimensional space that we have up, down, right, left, back, forward are, are the three dimensions that we normally experience through our senses. But mathematicians understand that there could be many more dimensions of space. In fact, there's something known as Hilbert space in mathematics, which has infinitely many dimensions. And the three dimensions would be embedded in four-dimensional space. Well, that could include space-time, Einstein and Minkowski's uh, space-time. But then there could be five, six, seven, eight, nine, up to infinity dimensions of space. And one way to think of it is that our consciousness actually inhabits these higher dimensions and they're virtually infinite in number. And in these dimensions, time is different. Uh, transformations occur that can be mapped out very precisely mathematically as you go from dimension to dimension to dimension. Uh, I think that uh, we are in an era today, Whitley, uh, of what I like to call psychonautics, that just as in the 15th century, explorers from Europe were discovering whole new continents. Today, people such as yourself, people engaged in past life regression, deep meditation, uh, mediumship, uh, all sorts of uh, techniques, including psychedelics, are exploring these realms of consciousness that are embedded in hyperspace. And I think we're beginning to create new maps, just as 500 years ago, they were creating new maps of the globe. And these are maps of consciousness. There are actually various rules and principles that, that take effect as you cross different boundaries from one level of hyperspace to another. These are dimensions of mind. 
And I'll go a step further and, and say that if we want to join the community of intergalactic civilizations capable of traveling between the stars, we have to understand hyperspace. And that means understanding the relationship between hyperspace and consciousness. Yes, we had a lady on Dreamland um, a week or so ago called Dolly Saffron, who is a the strangest probably the strangest close encounter witness I've ever encountered. She mm -hmm. is a conscious close encounter witness mm -hmm. who has very elaborate descriptions of her lifetime of close encounters backed up by videos that my experts can't explain. So we're, we're, we had quite a bit of fun and she seemed to be saying that there is another level of consciousness entirely that we have to enter. And that in fact, time's growing short that uh, we have to, and she didn't say this directly, but this is essentially the thrust of part of her conversation with her, uh, that penetrating the veil between the living and the dead is essential in order to save ourselves because we can't save ourselves unless we we are welcomed into this larger community and we can't do it just with the bodies there has to be the whole species has to be, we have to become whole and we're not whole because there's this artificial barrier that we've apparently set up for ourselves between the living and the dead do you have any idea why that barrier might be there uh, why is it that those that part of us that is flowing through the stream of time is so determined to see nothing but the moment that we are in inside the time stream and nothing else? Well, it's so seductive. I have had lengthy conversations with Bernardo Castrop on the New Thinking Aloud YouTube channel. Bernardo is... I think the leading philosopher today arguing in behalf of the what we call the idealistic uh, metaphysical philosophy of the mind-brain problem. Idealism is, is the philosophy that the universe itself is mental in, in nature. And uh, he publishes his articles in Scientific American. He's written a dozen books on the topic. And over and over again, he talks about how this materialistic worldview is. We get hypnotized by it, you might say. And it's a question of breaking free from that hypnotic trance, as many other cultures have done throughout the world. It's sort of a, an aberration that Western culture for the last 300 years or so has become so entrapped in this materialistic modality. You know, I think that entrapment is explained in the following way. The first part of it is we threw off a religious dictatorship that had been oppressing us for a thousand years. And second, uh, we discovered methods of manipulating the world that could cause it to magically flow with riches, unimaginable, extraordinary material riches 
and things like the ability to change our fates and, and to, uh, to manipulate the actions of the three fates so that when the cloth of life, uh, is to be cut off, instead, there's medical intervention. And sometimes that medical intervention causes a near death experience, as it did in the case of Anne. And in other words, our material culture is creating shaman every day because when you have a near-death experience and you come back, you're then a shaman. You have had the classic shamanic initiation of going through the world of the dead and returning. Can you speak to this? Well, there are many, many hopeful signs, and that's certainly one of them. I, I, I would... Step back, though, from saying that having had a near-death experience makes you a shaman, because in, in my understanding, Whitley, that's only the first step. The second step to becoming a shaman is recognition by the community. The community needs to acknowledge you as a shaman, and we're far from that right now. Uh, we still need to uh, continue the conversation so that the communities themselves are willing to recognize the many shamans amongst us. Yeah, that's true. Um, like Annie, after Annie had her near-death experience, I recognized her as a shaman, and, and she, she recognized herself as a shaman, and a few friends did, but mostly the world doesn't care. What the world cares about is the next Lexus. That's what it cares about, or the latest political foolery. I People are constantly after me on my show to talk politics, and I don't even know politics. I know nothing about it. I, I'm vaguely aware of it. It doesn't even matter to me. I'm on a different journey, and I don't think the political journey is a very important journey. It comes and goes. If it was 10 years ago, we'd all have different passions. Ten years from now, our passions will be different again. But what is important? What about the journey can lead us to the point where we recognize the shamans among us, honor them as the some people I know very fairly well, the Lakota Sioux, honor their shamans. The many of the indigenous cultures around the world in various ways honor their shamans. We look at our shamans, we look at someone like Eben Alexander, and we look down our nose at him. Oh, he must be completely crazy. He's an idiot. Uh, how do we change? Where, where, what do you and I and those listening need to do to help bring about this fundamental change in awareness? Unfortunately, I think that the political world is kind of coming together with the world of consciousness in the sense that for the first time in human history, humanity has the capacity to destroy ourselves. I don't think we're going to destroy the planet. We may not have the capacity even to destroy all life on earth, but I believe we do have the capacity to destroy all human life. And we're going at it, gangbusters, 
right now. That's what's happening in the world of politics. And it's very interesting that at the same time that we are confronting our own capacity as a species for self-destruction, that we see rising up everywhere, mystical experiences, near-death experiences, shamans uh, everywhere, and uh, the other uh, aspect of it is, of course, uh, one in which you are probably the foremost exponent, which is contact with non-human intelligence. All of these things are coming together, uh, and humanity is at a crisis point. I can tell you that uh, here, uh, where I live in Albuquerque, we're concerned about the possibility of nuclear war right now, and uh, we're making preparations uh, for at least the you know, potential for some survival, should that happen. Now, uh, if it were a hundred years ago, that wouldn't have been a possibility, but today it is. And it it seems to me that uh, it's only by looking at as our potential death as a species that we may wake up. I think that that it is a wake-up call. And it's just like what's happening in Ukraine on one level is making an irresistible demand on the on the western world to figure out how to break its addiction to fossil fuels because there's no other way to get out from under the domination of Russia and as time goes on western europe is going to have a harder and harder economic slog to to because of a lack of uh uh, fuels. And as Vladimir Putin knows perfectly well, there will be cracks in the facade very soon. Uh, they will begin to need Russia more than Russia needs them. And as far as nuclear war is concerned, that's, that's another thing. We are challenging ourselves to wake up to, and to survive. And we're doing it at many different levels. A lot of them are very dangerous, such as nuclear war or the horrible, grotesque uh, thing that's unfolding in the Ukraine. I mean, my God, it's it's in some ways it's more brutal than World War Two, because it, not in, in not in all ways, but in some. So we're trying to wake up, and that's always hard. One of the things you you've interviewed, and my dear friend Jeffrey Kripal. He says about initiation is that it is an overturning of everything you believed. And we have so many points of initiation in our society right now. Uh, among them, as you say, the dangers that are ex being explored in politics. Will we decide to extinguish ourselves or not? Now, I want to go on, though. We're, we're, I don't want to depart from the thrust of our conversation because we're going to get into politics if we're not careful. I want to go to uh, the extraordinary, you know, the, have you read recently, it's been discovered that the parts of the brain that contain memories burst into activity as a person dies. Can you talk a 
bit about the meaning and significance of the idea of life reviews now that we know scientifically that does happen at the end of life? Well, it's certainly reported in a high percentage of near-death experiences uh, that people remember their lives moment by moment. And in earth time, it might only take a few minutes for a person to relive their entire life moment by moment. And ironically, it's not just their life from their perspective. They review their life from the perspective of the other people who they influenced and touched. So if they hurt someone, they feel that pain. If they brought joy to another person, they feel that joy through the eyes and, and consciousness of the other person. Well, all of that, of course, suggests that in this, I'll call it a hyperspace dimension, time is very different. Uh, Eben Alexander calls it deep time. It's not at all like clock time here on Earth. And uh, it does seem to be a very important part of the uh, early stages of the afterlife, which is what I think near-death experiencers are reporting. But there's, of course, uh, much more to be said about the afterlife than just the early stages. Uh, but it certainly suggests that one of our reasons for existing at all as individual relatively autonomous human beings is is that we need to learn about everything we need to learn about how everyone else who we influence felt as a result of our influence and it seems as if the universe is so vast with billions of planets capable of supporting sentient life such as our own that that the universe of consciousness wants to experience all possibilities. My brother is a notorious and very skillful prankster. And I always say to him, remember, daddy, mama, and all of your other victims are waiting in line. And I'm not dead yet, but I'm already in line. <laughs> so <laughs> when, now he's a wonderful guy, by the way, don't get me wrong. He doesn't ever play particularly cruel pranks except on me, but I'm his older brother, so I'm fair game. And speaking of fair game, Free Dreamlanders, why don't you take a few minutes to do whatever it is we ask you to do? It's probably going to have something to do with subscribing to unknowncountry.com. We're talking to Jeffrey Mishlove, uh, one of the great podcasters of our time, and I'm humbled that he was willing to sit on the other side of the of the microphone with me. Uh, his website is newthinkingaloud.com, and if he has a home on YouTube as well, and you can you can really enjoy yourself listening to or watching and in fact watching is even better because jeffrey's face communicates his interest and enthusiasm so eloquently it's really beyond words so get into jeffrey's work it's a delight and a tremendously accomplished mind here now i want to move on into areas that are absolutely fascinating to all of us 
for example, out-of-body experience. And you have a, a, a section in your essay, a brief one about out-of-body experience. I've had out-of-body experiences. I've never been able to induce one, despite my friendship or acquaintanship, I should say, with Robert Monroe and going to a gateway at uh, the Monroe Institute and so on and so forth. But I have been taken out and sent on a number of missions uh, in which people have seen me. I mean, in other words, it's not Linda Moulton Howe saw me when I showed up in her bedroom in the middle of the night and peeking out from behind a potted plant and very confused and embarrassed. I didn't know who the woman was. I only knew that I was in a woman's bedroom and I could see her eyes were open. Uh, and I didn't know how I'd gotten there. But she was absolutely furious at first, but now she she laughs about it. She's more comfortable with it. But what are these things, and why should we do them? Should we try to engage with the world in another way? Should we try to to leave the physical, to remote view, to go out of body, uh, et cetera, and so forth, while we are alive? Does that matter? Well, I... Um have tried to do many of these things. I've certainly tried to do remote viewing. And I think actually for most people, if if you feel called to try, yes, go try. You can make a career out of it. But for most people, it's enough just to be open to these things when they occur spontaneously without trying to force it. Because ultimately, I think uh, we're here to learn how to love each other, to learn how to help each other more. that That's the greatest gift of, of all, is the gift of compassion. However, uh, these experiences, when they occur spontaneously, uh, as I see them, are signs that you're on the right path. That's... That, that's an interesting statement, that signs that we're on the right path. My wife used to always say, that synchronicities are, are signposts that you're on the right path. Now, let's talk a little bit about communication, afterlife communication, because it's something that both of us, obviously I've been heavily involved in, and I am heavily involved in it because I'm in touch with my wife. My wife, however, said immediately after she died, after we got in, back in communication. My listeners, of course, know all about this, so I'm not going to go through it now. Um, one of the first things she said was, I'm not Anne anymore, but I will always be Anne for you. And now I have discovered, and it was told to me in a way that I can't deny it, it must be true, that she is reincarnated and is a child. And I was also told that, that uh, I would be given a sign when I would able me to recognize the child. And I do know this child. And I'm watching the child grow up and knowing that this is Anne. But Anne is still with me. Anne is still actively engaged. The avatar she created, the, the white moth, which you know about and my listeners do too, before she passed away, is still a very active part of my life. So what's going on here? Is it that something other than this ego 
projects into the world? Is that how this is working, do you think, Jeffrey? Well, I think it's more complex than we can even imagine, ultimately, that uh, I, I like the phrase you use, the avatar, that in a sense, uh, what your viewers, if they're watching on TV uh, or a video and they see our images, uh, the, my image is not me. I might even say I'm not Jeffrey Mishlove. That's just a name that my parents gave uh, to me or to this body uh, at the time of my birth. Who I am is is a multidimensional being of such vastness that it's incomprehensible at the ego level. So I think that, that that's right. I think there is a, a sort of incomprehensibility. I think that we are, I think that we are projections moving through the stream of time and that this is all a sort of an illusion, but nevertheless, uh, uh, it's a very important one and a very valuable one because we are, energizing our souls with every moment that we live. Now, I want to shift again, if uh, I can, because one of the things we haven't touched on is the extraordinary amount of work that has been done on the whole subject of afterlife. Uh, let's talk and reincarnation and so on and so forth. And uh, let's, I think... You know, I think I'd like to do, we both love Russell Targ very much. He's a lovely man. He's been on my show. He's on your show more often than on mine. Let's talk about Elizabeth Targ, one of the more communicative uh, entities in the afterlife and Russell in general. Why don't we just, why don't you tell us a little bit about what happened, who Elizabeth was and what happened with Russell and Elizabeth? Yeah. Yeah, Elizabeth, of course, is Russell's daughter. Uh, she was a friend of mine. She died, as I recall, in 2004, I think, maybe 2002, uh, somewhere in there at the age of 41. She was doing wonderful research. She became a psychiatrist and a parapsychologist. She was researching psychic healing. And in particular, she was working with people who had geoblastomas, brain tumors that are deadly when she herself became ill with a geoblastoma and died. And shortly after her death, there were many, many communications that were reported. In fact, uh, one of them uh, came through uh, Russell's writing partner, Jane Catra. Jane was at Duke University interviewing for a job, and during an intermission, one of the staff members came up to her and said, Jane, do you know a woman with uh, short, dark hair who died recently? Jane thought about Elizabeth and said, yes. And the woman said, well, she's with me now and she's urging me to give you a message to pass on to her father because he doesn't believe in the afterlife, but this will convince him. And the message is that when I was a young person, like two years old, he forced me to wear a red dress and I didn't want to wear it and I tore it off. And when Russell heard that story, he realized that he was the only living person who knew about that event. 
because uh, his his wife, who had been around at the time, Joan, had predeceased Elizabeth. So that convinced Russell that Elizabeth was indeed alive and, and communicating with him. And of course, there were many other examples. And I also had a communication from Elizabeth Whitley. It occurred in a lucid dream. Elizabeth came to me and I was so happy to see her. I said, Elizabeth, how wonderful to see you. I'm so impressed with all the communications you've been generating, especially the physical ones, because there were many of, of that type. And just as I said, especially the physical ones, I was awakened by the phone next to my bed that rang at three in the morning. I picked up the phone, Whitley, and it was just white noise. That is a wonderful story. And it, it, the reason I wanted to bring this in at this point is I want to circle back to your Uncle Harry and the experience of uh, being essentially awakened by him. That, that's what he did. And Elizabeth came back and woke up her dad, Russell. And then for good, good, good measure, she did a little reinforcement with you too. <laughs> and if Annie didn't need to wake me up because I had already been waked up by a, a, a dead man in my life who could materialize and become physical at times. And it, it's a wonderful story. My listeners know the story. And if we do this, if we change, exchange interviews, then I'll tell it on your show. But uh, it, so this, there is an attempt being made from the other side to wake us up unquestionably. unquestionably. And it's very, very different from the past because in the past we would have contextualized these things in, 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 in terms of religion and myth, we would have seen the gods and we would have seen angels and demons, etc., and so forth. But now we're seeing Elizabeth and Harry and Anne. It's very different. This is a different world, a different age. What are the chances that the veil between the living and the dead will really fall? I think it is falling. But really, when I say really fall, that, I, that the people who are here devoted to the materialist paradigm will begin to feel comfortable with it. Well, there certainly are important new movements taking place. It may be a while before society as a whole, before millions of people are going to be comfortable knowing that our world that we think of as a physical world interpenetrates the, the world of the dead or the afterlife and many other dimensions as well as, as you understand. I think one of the most important steps in that direction was undertaken by Frederick Myers over a hundred years ago. He died in 1902 uh, after having written a classic book, which was only published posthumously called Human Personality and Its Survival of Bodily Death, a classic, uh, wonderful book published in two volumes. And some 
30 years after he died. Well, let me actually backtrack and say a few years after he died, it seemed as if he organized a whole program of psychic research from his side in which he and other members of the Society for Psychical Research began communicating through different mediums, simultaneously mediums in North America, in India, and in England. And what they did is... process known as the cross correspondences. They created like puzzles in which you had to have all the pieces of the puzzle, a message from India, a message from America, a message from the UK. They never made sense until you put all three together. And then you got a whole picture, not just a, a a picture, but it was something that was poetic that expressed the personality of the communicator. So it was their way of trying to let us know that they're conscious, they're alive, and that they're deliberately creating this experiment. And that went on for many, many years. And then some 30 years after his death, Frederick Myers dictated a book through an automatic writer in England named Geraldine Cummins. The book was called The Road to Immortality, in which he described in some detail what life had been like for him in the afterlife after 30 years of exploration. That's absolutely fascinating. The Road to Immortality. Uh, I'm going to write that down. I have not read that book, and I certainly want to. Uh, we are talking to Jeffrey Mishlove of New Thinking Aloud. NewThinkingAloud.com is where you need to go to get started with Jeffrey. Jeffrey, as I have said before, I believe to be one of the best podcasters on in the world. And uh, his show is a vast treasure trove of superb interviews with all kinds of absolutely fascinating people. Uh, including most recently uh, Charles Upton, uh, who uh, is looks looks through this uh, through the lens of darkness. Uh, I guess would be the best way to describe that. But it is a a wonderful achievement on Jeffrey's part, not to mention his other most recent great achievement, which is winning the Robert Bigelow's Foundation uh, Award and. You can, um, you can, I will have a link to the bigelowinstitute.org where you can read his essay and all the other essays. And we're going to be having other essayists on Dreamland over the next few months. Uh, Elizabeth Crone will be with us. Uh, Elizabeth has had, uh, she, she got struck by lightning on her way into a church. And as she was walking into the church, she discovered that only her boys were walking into the church and she was there, but actually the heap of clothes on the sidewalk, on the driveway of the, of the church was her body. And so it's a remarkable story. And there are other remarkable stories in this extraordinary journey that Mr. Bigelow has had the grace and wit and determination to take us all on. So, uh, do go to bigelowinstitute.org and uh and enjoy these mind-opening essays subscribers we will keep on keeping on as always 
Jeffrey, where I would like to go now is the is into, and I, I brought up uh, Charles Upton for a reason, that this has mm. other sides, and you have a very interesting area in your essay called Possession, uh, where we t- you talk about uh, a, a number of cases where people have been apparently possessed by, and I've been possessed, and but I found if you relax into it, it's not necessarily all that bad. I, I can let, I am able to let other s- souls in and to use my body. Uh, and my wife being one of them, and she was the first, and now there are many of them. I'm, I'm like a tourist attraction. <laughs> okay, so tell us a little bit about possession and its significance, because it's one of the blocks to really getting into this, because people, when this draws close to them and they realize it's really there, the fear of possession comes into their minds. Well, there are many different kinds of uh, possession. One can become possessed by a deity or by a a demonic possession. Uh, The type of possession that I wrote about, of course, is evidence for the afterlife is also sometimes called replacement reincarnation. And I cite in particular two cases. Uh, The most dramatic of those is known as the Shiva uh, Sumitra case of of possession. And this occurred in the 1980s in India. Uh, Sumitra Singh was a, a married woman with two children. She got sick. Uh, and her family assumed that she had died. They were preparing for cremation when all of a sudden she sat up and uh, looked around and announced that uh, she was alive. However, she said, I'm not Sumitra. My name is Shiva. And furthermore, actually, I was murdered about uh, four months ago uh, in a village some 50 miles from here. Uh, in fact, uh, Shiva didn't even speak the same language (laughs) as as Sumitra. She was more educated. She spoke in a a different manner throughout uh, the remaining life of of that body, which was about 13 more years. She announced she would be there for about 12 years when she came. She remained married to Sumitra's husband, even had I think one or two more children with him, but she insisted throughout that time that she was actually uh, Shiva Tripathi. And in fact, the Tripathi family learned about this, was about, as I say, 50 miles away in another village in India. And when they came to visit, Shiva recognized them all. She hugged them warmly. She asked about her children and uh, until she died, she insisted that she was Shiva. In fact, the BBC even came and did a uh, an interview with her many years later in which she acknowledged that she was still Shiva, that she didn't have any of Sumitra's memories. She only had Shiva's memories. So it was as if what had happened is, is that... Uh, Sumitra Singh did in fact die, but the body was still warm enough for 
the spirit of Shiva to come and enter that body and reawaken it. And she described, in fact, how after she had been murdered a few months earlier, she was uh, in the realm of death with Yama, the god of death in her tradition, and uh, that it was decided that uh, she had been murdered prematurely and that she should return. And uh, this was the means of uh, her return through the uh, body of another person. So uh, you could think of it as uh, a form of reincarnation. I, I, it's very different, I think, from the kind of possession uh, that you were describing earlier in which you sort of share your body, I think is maybe a better way of putting it, with other entities that will work through you. Am I correct, Whitley? Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Sharing the body is something I, I have learned to do. And uh, you just have to relax into it and <laughs> and not let your you know, there's a natural tendency to hold on to it. Uh, but, you know, once you, once you get, get, get to the realization that this is only instinct and it's not, it, 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 no one's going to take my body forever, especially once they figure out how I live, they think, oh my God, I've had enough of this. I'm going, I'm going to try another body. So, uh, but it's a very instructive thing because when that happens, and I have a, a sensing exercise group that I, I have, and when we meet, it often happens, and I find myself, I hear myself talking and conducting the exercise, but I'm not doing it. And then the, the body's, uh, the, the consciousness that was substituting for me, leaves and I'm back and I have to be very careful to know where I have to be very careful to know where I am in the exercise or I'll lose the track. <laughs> so it's, mm -hmm. I think it's fascinating and I, I, I'm very comfortable with it, mm -hmm. but let's, let's move on though, because this is a, a huge subject. And my hope here is that we're sort of doing a, uh, we're sort of uh, exploring it in many different ways because I want my listeners to to essentially to stop. We live in a culture that makes us very passive. It, it we're we are not searchers and seekers. We're very passive, and the more we get involved in material culture, the more things we want, the more passive we become to this level, and more indifferent to it. Now, I want to turn now to someone who is very close to me and very important to me, which is Constantine Rodebay. And my listeners have already heard why that is and what it has to do with my implant, uh, because that implant was, was designed by Constantine Rodebay. And it is a human thing. It is a piece of human technology, not something from aliens. Now, talk to us, therefore, a little bit about Instrumental Transcommunication and Constantine Rodave and his work on both sides of the veil. Yeah, Rodave is a figure very much like Frederick Myers, who uh, appeared through multiple mediums and eventually dictated that book, The Search or, or The Road to Immortality, uh, working with the automatic writer Geraldine Cummins. Rodave was a pioneer uh, in 
what we now call instrumental transcommunication. In fact, he wrote the first great book on that. Known, I think the title was Breakthrough. And then subsequently he died. I, I don't recall the exact date of his death, but I think it may have been in the 1970s, 1980s, shortly after his book appeared. Uh, I understand that there are hundreds of people who have now received messages from Route of A, and there are tens of thousands of hobbyists working in the field of instrumental transcommunication, which means using electronic equipment can be computers, televisions, radios, uh, and other devices. There's a device known as the ghost box that many people now use uh, to communicate with their deceased loved ones. And some of the messages from Route of A are very clear and distinct. Many people, in fact, my, I myself was quite skeptical about instrumental transcommunication because many of the examples I'd heard about seem vague and indistinct. And there's always the possibility of psychological projection or uh, sometimes known as pareidolia. But when you hear Raudave's voice coming through uh, the telephone or the radios or the computers of different people independently. And it's the same voice with, a, I believe he was Latvian with a very pronounced Latvian accent. Uh, it seems quite clear that this individual from the other side is making a very forceful effort to communicate over and over and over again with numerous people, and including one such individual, Mark Macy of Boulder, Colorado, where Routave gave him detailed technical instructions for building equipment to use for the purpose of instrumental transcommunication. Well, I have had quite an experience with life with Routave. I, my implant... Um, a doctor we probably both know, but who shall go nameless largely because he's very sensitive about the use of his name on the radio and television. He has a terrific temper. <laughs> I don't want to get him calling me up and yelling at me. Um, wanted to study the implant. He's not the only one. There are quite a few who've tried and one even tried to take it out. And it, it, it ran away and went down into the of my ear, into my earlobe. Um, in any case, um, he wanted to get a, a CAT scan of the object. And he, two days before that, two men showed up at the at this apartment in the middle of the night, one of whom I've known for years. I, they were people. At least I used to think of them as people. I'm not so sure what they are now. They were very sweet, and they were there to explain to me about the implant and and basically to say why I shouldn't fool around with it. I should just leave it and let it work, let it do its work. And the name Constantine Rodave came up as the designer of it and apparently designed from the other side. And, and there was a obviously an interface between us and our non-physical component and these men were on that interface, and they may have even been the dead in, man in some kind of physical manifestation. I don't know. But I happened to tell some friends about this, and one of them also has – I have a little slit in my eye. I believe I've been talked to this, about this on your show. 
where words come flashing through. And that's a big part of how it works. And I was telling this to this particular friend who is an expert in afterlife studies. And he said, well, you know, that's odd. Uh, I have the same thing. And I've often wondered what it was. And then it, it, it occurred to me, he's also one of the world's leading experts on Constantine Rodovay. So Rodové gets around. He's active. As Constantine Rodové, he's here. We probably could even conjure him up. We're going to be talking about mediumship in just a moment, so perhaps we will. But how much more, how much farther do you sense we might be able to go in terms of the kind of use of things like electronics that will bring the scientific community closer to an ability to draw this into uh, study using the established scientific method? Well, I've done uh, a few interviews with Annabella Cardoso, a former Portuguese diplomat. She was the charged affairs in uh, several Portuguese embassies in India and Japan. I think she also worked in the United States. She left because uh, she got so deeply involved in this ITC work. And she did a, a double-blind, well-controlled experiment in a university in an acoustical laboratory where voices came through. They were clear and distinct. The article was published in a, a scientific journal. So I think we have to take this very seriously. But uh, like all of the endeavors, whether it's research with mediums or near-death experience or reincarnation or after-death communications uh, or xenoglossy, these fields are not well-funded. And uh, it's so easy for uh, the scientific community at large to pretend as if the mountain of evidence that has accumulated over the last 150 years doesn't exist at all. Uh, However, that evidence keeps accumulating, it keeps growing, and at some point, we're going to reach a tipping point. And when that happens, I think what we'll experience, Whitley, is known as whole systems transition, where one day you'll wake up and everybody will be saying, oh, yeah, of course, the afterlife, we, we knew about this all along. I think that's going to happen with the close encounter experience, too. Uh, now that, uh, for example, Lou Alessandro is talking about it on um, Fox News. I forget which show, but some I don't watch much television, so I'm always sort of out of it when it comes to that. But uh, he's talking about of course, only about the negative aspect of it, because that, that you can't control it unless you scare people. So if you want to want to scare people, I mean, if you want to control it, you've got to. And also, there's another factor. It does have a dark side. I don't want to get onto this this subject today. And it the dark side does has to have to be addressed. And I I don't think Lou is wrong to address it. Now, when we get to uh, the the question of after-death communications. My wife and I prearranged the relationship we have now. 
Can you, and in fact, you, you mentioned that in your essay, uh, but are you interested in trying to prearrange? And there have been many attempts to do that that have essentially failed. That Anne's did not fail. It's very effective. In fact, just a couple of nights ago, I was with a bunch of friends who Anne, all of whom Anne loved, and uh, the white moth appeared in this room while I was downtown in downtown L.A. The camera signaled me that there was movement. I looked at the camera, and there was the white moth flying into the middle of the room and disappearing like it usually does. And so I showed the film to everybody, and everyone said, Hi, Anne. Hi, Anne. We we love you. We, we, we know you're listening, and I hope you're enjoying it. So how about it? Are you going to do it? Are you going to try? Well, I haven't yet made any uh, specific plans. I think uh, uh, with my own wife, we've sort of talked about a place where we will meet together in the afterlife when we're both there. But uh, no, it's just something that hasn't yet come up for me. Well, Annie has a message for you that I just got right now. (laughs) She said, don't be afraid to look at your own death. This is all a lot of fun. Thank you, Andy. Yeah. She's she's having a lot of fun with this. Mm-hmm. And um, as soon as she passed away, the first thing I realized that she was there the next morning, this was after the first phone call, I, I got the impression that she was just absolutely delighted and that she said, I'm still here. And I didn't at that point know whether or not it was my mind or not. And I was starting to clear her stuff out and I threw a bunch of socks away and I heard her say, you threw away my socks. And I thought to myself, I don't know whether I'm hearing that in me or in from her, but I bought a whole bunch of identical socks and put them in the drawer and they're still there. (laughs) She can use them anytime she wants. (laughs) And this gets me to the relationship between the physical and non-physical worlds. The ancient Egyptians, of course, famously mummified everything. And this process of mummification has been very much part of human experience. We still do it today because when you fill a body with formaldehyde and put it in a sealed crypt underground, you are creating a mummy. Why do you think we do that? And what about things like cremation? Um, I'm slated to be cremated. And is that a bad idea, do you think? Or Annie gave her body to the medical school, for God's sakes. It was a very difficult thing for us, myself and my son, to do. But we did it for her because that's what she wanted. But what about the body, the soul, and the flow between the life, the life and the afterlife? Well, my view of it, Whitley, is that the body exists within the soul. It's not that the soul exists within the body, as some people imagine, like uh, Arthur Kessler writes in his book, The Ghost in the Machine. I think that uh, the, all of the body, in fact, the entire 
physical universe exists with within mind at large itself and even within our individual consciousness you you might say that uh, as one poet put it that uh, the entire universe exists within the, the space of the skull, uh, which I don't accept because, of course, as, as, as I say, I think the whole skull and the whole body and the whole universe exists within consciousness. So from my point of view, it doesn't matter if you're cremated or if you're embalmed or if you're uh, uh, pulverized or, or vaporized in an atomic explosion. The, uh, all of these things are, uh, from my point of view, indifferent to the soul. But it does seem as if various religious traditions all have specific ideas uh, about what's to be done. And uh, as far as I know, uh, I don't think there's uh, any necessity to follow any particular religion, but I do feel like all the world's religions were at a point in history where we are the inheritors of global culture. So it it's worthwhile to study them and to find uh, points where we can uh, learn and uh, be respectful of those traditions. The question now is very much, is the human mind large enough to apprehend the meaning of humanity? This is where we are now, and this is our struggle. Uh, and you're a big part of that struggle because you and Robert Bigelow is a big part of the struggle because he's willing to put up money to, to, to do this and to bring these essays out and uh so it, you know it's it th this is the essential struggle of our time i think and i think that a large decision is being made by the human species that decision is do we go on in the physical or not do we or not are we finished with the physical or are we not and i asked annie uh what happens to people who do a lot of evil and her answer was very surprising. She said nothing. It took me a long time to understand that, that there is a path toward something like, I think, that might be immortality, a path of extraordinary joy. And I want to talk about, you only touch on it in the essay, but I think it's quite important, and I think you know a lot more about it than you said in the essay, and that is indescribable love, this extraordinary love that is there and here, that is in the world, that is so big that it's almost hard for us to face it. Well, Elizabeth Crone whom you mentioned will be on your program soon, the uh, lady who co-authored the book Changed in a Flash with Jeffrey Kripal and had a near-death experience after being struck by lightning, is very eloquent about the experience of overwhelming love. And she made a point of saying she knows about love. She's a mother. Uh, but this was a level way beyond that. And to, to the best of my understanding, Whitley, it's what you could think of as non-dual love. 
Here in the physical plane, we mostly live in a world of duality where you're taught to love God and love the good and hate the devil and hate evil. But there's another level at which uh, there is no duality at all. Uh, the way I like to tell it to people is to love everyone and everything all the time. That means love Putin, not only love Putin, but love the war. And, and so it's way beyond anything uh, associated with normal human consciousness. It's a, a love uh, that you might say the equivalent might be when you love a book like War and Peace. You can love the whole book, the passion of, of the whole story, because you're no longer attached to your role as an actor in this play. But you, you can see it from the point of view of the author. Uh, so to speak there. So there's this much larger sense of love of, of which we are it, it, maybe not capable because I struggle with it myself. <laughs> it's hard enough to love everyone, let alone everything. But it, at least we can know about it. And I think aim for it. Uh, one of my interviewees said it takes about 35,000 lifetimes to actually get to that level and uh, the, the evolution of the soul to higher and higher levels of love seems to actually be what our purpose is here on earth to begin with. I think you're right. Uh, I asked Annie what enlightenment meant or what do you do to be enlightened? And she said, enlightenment is what happens when there is nothing left of us but love. But that kind of love can't live really in the ego. It's not possible. I'm not, I'm not going to be able to love Putin. Whitley isn't. But there's, there's or Hitler, or any of those creeps. Uh, but there's another level of love. And you can find it in the Sphinx. It's hidden there the courage of the lion, the strength of the bull are balanced by the intelligence of the, of the, of the human mind. And when all three are in balance, that means the Sphinx spreads its wings and rises above the earth and looks down on the world with objectivity. In other words, it does not belong to the flow of time, but it does see it. And that love is the love that really we're speaking of now. It's the love that Meister Eckhart touched upon when he said, God laughs and plays. And I think, Jeffrey, it's time for me to ask you, two things. One, will, and I hope the answer is yes, the essay become a book? And if, then second, what are you going to do now? Where are you going? Well, I actually am more interested in turning the essay into a documentary. You know, I had the advantage of having done all these interviews for 50 years. So one of the strengths of the essay, maybe the reason that it was unanimously selected as, 
uh, first place by all of the judges is because I included links to video excerpts, including at least one with you, Wetley, from about 40 other individuals giving testimony to their experiences of the afterlife and their scholarly study of the afterlife. So in a way, the essay is really a treatment for a, a documentary rather than a book, although it will be published as um, Mr. Bigelow is planning a set of five or six or seven volumes with all the essays in it. So it will be there. But in the printed form, you won't have the hot links to all of the actual video interviews that are in the essay. And as for myself, I'm still putting up four videos every week on the New Thinking Aloud channel on YouTube. And uh, I hope to do more in the documentary world. I know you interviewed me years ago about my book, The PK Man, and uh, Ted Owens and uh, his remarkable uh, encounters with uh, what he called the space intelligences who gave him uh, psychokinetic powers. Uh, I'd like to see that made into a, a documentary and perhaps a feature film, but I, I love what I do. I, I'm passionate about uh, the work I do with the New Thinking Aloud channel. So I'm happy to just sort of continue uh, along the uh, path I've been on for the last 50 years. Well, it's a rich path, and maybe Mr. Bigelow will be interested in, in uh, financing that documentary, although I think that you could certainly find uh, backers in in the conventional world of of film and television because uh, i think it's obvious that you could and robert always says to me i don't want you to talk about me but i'm going to talk about him a little bit and that is the bigelowinstitute.org is a place well worth going and among other things i believe you can see jeffrey's acceptance speech there which takes place in an extremely interesting space uh, that uh, where uh, there are all kinds of sort of satellite things that Mr. Bigelow is developing. And he is a truly remarkable man, one of the most unusual polymaths in the world because his polymathy is devoted to the edge of reality and possibility. A remarkable, truly remarkable man. So, and now he probably will watch this, and I hope I haven't annoyed you. I won't say any more. Jeffrey, I want to thank you for being with us. It was an absolute delight, of course. And we will meet again soon, I hope, somewhere in your program or mine. I hope we have many more conversations, Whitley. It's always a great pleasure for me to be with you. Same here. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host. And I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander. <laughs>